Hey everyone, this lesson is on achalasia. In this lesson, we're going to talk about what this condition is. We're also going to talk about what causes it, some of the pathophysiology behind this condition. We're also going to talk about some of the signs and symptoms, how it's diagnosed, and how it's treated. So what is achalasia? Achalasia is an acquired esophageal motility disorder involving failure of the lower esophageal sphincter, or LES, to relax. So very key here, it is an acquired condition. So individuals are not born with this condition. They end up getting it later on in their life. It involves a disorder of esophageal motility and it involves issues with relaxation of the lower esophageal sphincter. So the lower esophageal sphincter is located in this area here and it prevents the reflux of gastric contents into the esophagus. But if you're not able to relax this portion of your esophagus, you can understand that there'll be problems getting food into the stomach and that is going to cause a lot of symptoms we're going to talk about later on in this lesson. So there is two types of achalasia. There's primary achalasia, which is idiopathic, so the cause is unknown. And then there's secondary achalasia, which is caused by another condition. We're going to talk about those conditions that cause achalasia later on in this lesson as well. What is the epidemiology of achalasia? It is a rare condition. It's estimated that approximately 10 per 100,000 individuals have this condition. And there's no difference in prevalence between genders. Males and females are approximately equal to each other in prevalence. And there is a peak incidence of achalasia between the ages of 30 to 60 years of age. And it's also important to note that having achalasia increases your risk of having esophageal cancer, especially squamous cell carcinoma of the esophagus, by sevenfold. So very, very high risk of getting esophageal cancer if you have achalasia. Now let's talk about some of the pathophysiology behind achalasia. What's important to note with achalasia is that it involves a degeneration and loss of myenteric plexus neurons that innervate the lower esophageal sphincter. So these myenteric plexus neurons inhibit the contraction of the lower esophageal sphincter. So you can see in this diagram here, there's multiple layers of the esophagus and one of the layers contains what we call the myenteric plexus, and this has inhibitory neurons. So these inhibit contraction of the lower esophageal sphincter, so it allows the sphincter to relax. What happens specifically in this condition is that there's a reduced number of myenteric ganglion cells. So the cells in this area here, so the myenteric plexus cells, decrease in number. And there's some inflammatory changes as well. You can see some white blood cells that migrate into this area. And there's also some replacement of the lost ganglion cells with collagen. So it's almost like a scar tissue forming in this area. So this leads to a loss of inhibitory neuronal activity. Very key here. These myenteric plexus neurons are involved in inhibiting contraction of the sphincter. So that means that the lower esophageal sphincter is unable to relax. When you are not eating, it is supposed to be contracted to prevent gastric contents from refluxing up into the esophagus. But when you eat, when you swallow something, that lower esophageal sphincter is supposed to relax, allowing that content to go into your stomach. But in this condition, that doesn't happen. The lower esophageal sphincter is unable to relax. And there's some other issues with esophageal motility as well. So Esophageal peristalsis, which is the wave-like contractions in the esophagus, are also altered in this condition. This essentially leads to a functional obstruction at the gastroesophageal junction. And as I mentioned before, there's significant decreases or alterations in esophageal peristalsis, the wave-like contraction of the esophagus that 
slowly pushes food down the esophagus. So there's both issues with esophageal peristalsis and lower esophageal sphincter not being able to relax properly. Now that we know that achalasia is caused by degeneration of myenteric plexus neurons, what might be causing those neurons to degenerate in the first place? So as I mentioned before, idiopathic causes lead to primary achalasia. And idiopathic means that the cause is not known. It is believed that it may be due to an autoimmune-mediated mechanism or some genetic predisposition. Some other causes that can lead to secondary achalasia include cancers, like gastric adenocarcinoma. So if there is a cancer in the stomach, especially if that cancer is close to the lower esophageal sphincter, so it's in the proximal stomach, you can imagine that that cancer might be affecting the myenteric plexus neurons, preventing those myenteric plexus neurons from relaxing the lower esophageal sphincter. So that can be one cause. Lymphoma in the area as well. So if there's large swollen lymph nodes around the stomach, those enlarged lymph nodes may cause issues with myenteric plexus activity, preventing proper relaxation of the lower esophageal sphincter. Some infections can also lead to achalasia that specifically damage the myenteric plexus. This includes Chagas disease. So Chagas disease is an infection with Trypanosoma cruzi, which is a protozoa. If you want more information on this infection, please check out my lesson on that topic. And some autoimmune conditions may also lead to issues with relaxation of the lower esophageal sphincter. And one of these autoimmune conditions is eosinophilic gastroenteritis. Now let's talk about the signs and symptoms of achalasia. So by far the most important symptom of achalasia is dysphagia. So dysphagia is problem swallowing. Most of the time, it's for both solids and liquids. So solid food dysphagia and liquid dysphagia. So both occur. So issues swallowing both solids and liquids. Although some patients may have progressive dysphagia. So they start by having dysphagia to solids only, and then this progresses and gets worse and leads to liquid dysphagia as well. So they have dysphagia to both solids and liquids later on. And this dysphagia is worsened by rapid eating. So if they eat very quickly, this can be worse. And oftentimes this dysphagia is described as a knot or ball of food in their esophagus. So, so they feel like the food is stuck. It's caught. It feels like a ball that's formed because it's not able to get past the contracted lower esophageal sphincter. Regurgitation is also another common symptom of achalasia as well. So that food that sits there is not getting into the stomach the way it should be because the lower esophageal sphincter is closed and this causes the patient to cough up or regurgitate undigested food. They can also have issues with chest pain, so they can have painful sensations due to that food sitting in the esophagus. They can also have issues with heartburn, weight loss, so individuals who have significant issues with dysphagia may avoid eating entirely. And they can also have some pulmonary issues as well. And the reason for these pulmonary issues is because they can have recurrent aspirations. Aspirations are where that food content from the esophagus gets coughed up or regurgitated, but it falls back down into the trachea and into the lungs. And this can cause lung issues, including lung abscesses. And then there's also an uncommon symptom of difficulty burping. So because that lower esophageal sphincter is contracted, they have some difficulty belching. Now let's talk about diagnosis of achalasia. How do clinicians diagnose this condition? The first important method of diagnosing achalasia is barium swallow. And what is noted is the classic bird beak. 
So barium swallow is when an individual drinks barium and they have x-ray imaging performed and then they follow that liquid down the esophagus. But in achalasia, what is noted is a bird beak. So you can see where the liquid essentially stops at that contracted lower esophageal sphincter. So if you can imagine this is the head of a bird with the bird beak here. So the barium essentially gets narrowed down at the contracted lower esophageal sphincter. And what they also note is that proximal esophagus becomes dilated. So the distal esophagus, where the lower esophageal sphincter is, it's very narrow, but there's a dilated proximal esophagus. So that is the bird's beak with a barium swallow. Another important diagnostic method for achalasia is upper endoscopy or EGD. This helps to rule out other diagnoses. So other diagnoses that could be causing something similar to this include retention esophagitis, but there's some other conditions you want to rule out as well, including some cancers. The problem with this is that a lot of times upper endoscopy may be normal in early cases of achalasia. So it's good to help rule out other diagnoses, but it may be difficult to actually assess for achalasia. And then manometry is also important for diagnosis. This is mostly to confirm diagnosis, and this assesses the contraction of the lower esophageal sphincter. So when an individual swallows, the lower esophageal sphincter should relax, but it does not. So that confirms the diagnosis. Now let's talk about how clinicians treat achalasia. One of the ways is through educating the patient on changing food eating habits. So it's important to educate the patient to increase the amount of chewing, to soften their food significantly, and also to avoid eating before bedtime. So those are some of the lifestyle changes they can perform. Medications can also be used. These include anti-muscarinics, although these are not very useful. Nitroglycerin can also be used, either sublingually or long-acting nitroglycerin. And calcium channel blockers can also be used as well. Botox injection of the lower esophageal sphincter can also be performed during endoscopy. So during a scope, there can be some botulinum toxin that is injected into the lower esophageal sphincter, allowing it to relax. But this measure is temporary and Botox injections will have to be performed multiple times in the future as the Botox efficacy reduces over time. Another important treatment methodology for achalasia is esophageal dilatation. So dilating the esophagus, dilating the area of the lower esophageal sphincter. And the best way is through pneumatic balloon. And esophageal dilatation will have to be performed multiple times as well over the course of a patient's life. And for individuals who don't respond well to these prior therapies, surgery can be performed. And what is performed is a myotomy or a Heller myotomy. And this is a procedure where a part of the inner sphincter is removed to allow some relaxation, to allow some opening for food to enter into the stomach. So if you want to learn more about other gastroenterology conditions, please check my playlist on those topics. And if you haven't already, please consider liking, subscribing, and clicking the notification bell to help support the channel and stay up to date on future lessons. Thanks so much for watching, and I hope to see you next time.